Hi, everybody. This is the Funeral Science Podcast, a podcast about funeral science. I'm Ben, and I will be your funeral scientist for today. Temperature is a fundamental aspect of nature, influencing various phenomena from chemical reactions to making us yearn for a hot cup of cocoa on a cold winter's day, at least where I live. After death, the body's temperature is influenced by external conditions and can affect our embalming. Now, of course, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the most well-known postmortem temperature change. By, of course, I mean algor mortis. In mortuary and forensic science, we define this as a postmortem change to ambient temperature. Interestingly, the phrase itself means coldness of death. Even though perhaps most deaths in the world take place in environments above normal body temperature. So why is there no opposite term meaning warmth of death? There is an obscure term known as calor mortis, which would fit this description, but it is not used commonly as a professional term. The word calor means heat, and it may sound familiar to you as it is the root of the word calorie, which of course is the measurement of heat necessary to raise one gram of water one degree Celsius. A little bit of speculation on the history of algor mortis might give us some insight. The measurements of postmortem temperature changes were first absorbed by a Cornish doctor and chemist named John Davy in 1839. However, the term algor mortis first appears in the literature in 1849 used by a man named Bennett Dower who experimented with postmortem temperature changes by cutting the heads off of alligators. Yes, you heard that correctly. He also observed the caloricity that occurred after the trauma of the decapitation, a postmortem temperature change we now called postmortem caloricity. From this information, two things come to mind about why we use the term algor mortis to describe postmortem temperature change. Number one, the coldness of death has a very Victorian ring to it. And two, both of these men came from places that were environmentally cold. So they assumed that bodies must always cool when adjusting to the environment around them. Fortunately, embalming a body with algor mortis is typical and we can navigate that. But what about bodies where the temperature is very cold? As embalmers, we regularly deal with bodies that have been refrigerated, even to the point of being frozen. So let's look at what is happening to the common biochemicals in the body and the cells when this happens. First, water. It's safe to assume that we know that water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. But what effect does this have on the cells? Well, ice is spiky and it damages cells. The ice crystals also make their way to the surface and sublimate, which is the change from solid to gas, aided by the movement of air. Further, as the ice crystals form, they are removed from the body's fluids and create a more hypertonic environment. 
you may recall that this means a more concentrated solution. Both of these occurrences can lead to dehydration. Such was the case of the Copper Age ice mummy known as Utsi. Like Utsi's cells, they can become so dehydrated that embalming solutions cannot penetrate them. For more on Utsi's story, see the Funeral Science Podcast episode on Utsi. Next, lipids. Lipids are found in cell membranes and are permeable, allowing for the diffusion of our embalming chemicals. When lipids get cold, they lose what is called homeoviscosity, which we can think of as a balanced thickness that surrounds the cell. When this happens, the cells become less permeable and therefore more difficult to embalm. Fortunately, lipids can be rehydrated with methanol, which is a standard embalming chemical ingredient as it also prevents formaldehyde from polymerizing or becoming solid. Third, proteins. Besides water, proteins account for most of your body's biochemicals, and it is their preservation we seek when we are embalming. When they freeze, they denature, and muscle tissue is particularly susceptible to this, Enzymes are deactivated and they become hydrophobic or water-fearing. At first glance, this is good news because this is what we are trying to do when we embalm. However, the stress from the crystals formed by the water can cause the proteins to fragment, so when the proteins are warmed back up, they are quicker to decompose. Cold temperatures also have several effects on our embalming solution that we should consider. First, there is a secondary temperature effect. Cold water absorbs heat when it is cold, so if we start with a cold solution, then the solution will get colder. Further, water is denser than air, so the transfer of heat is faster. Second. There are varied freezing points in our solution. Embalming solutions are not just made of water, which in fact has the highest freezing temperature of all of our solution components. Common embalming chemicals have a much lower freezing temperature than water. This means it must be very cold for the rest of your solution to freeze. However, we must remember that after your embalming machine is turned off, your solution becomes static. So if the water freezes in the body, then it will trap these chemicals in ice and prevent them from doing their job. Now for this episode's listener's question. This episode's question comes from Nora, who besides my mom is probably the most prevalent listener of this podcast. She asked me about the Canary Girls of World War I. First, who are they? In World War I, the nature of warfare changed and artillery shells became a more common weapon. Because the men were fighting in the war, women were tasked with manufacturing the arterial shells, the artillery shells. Sorry, everybody, you know how I can get. One such place this was done was in Pembury, Wales, where Nobel's Explosives was located. This name may sound familiar to you as the owner, 
Alfred Nobel would go on to found the Nobel Prizes as a way of apologizing for manufacturing trinitrotoluene, also known as TNT, the active ingredient in dynamite, which was originally intended for civilian purposes. TNT is also highly poisonous and contains picric acid, which causes the skin of those that come into contact with it to turn a bright yellow due to toxic jaundice. Women displaying this symptom were called canary girls. In addition to toxic jaundice, picric acid causes anemia and damage to the immune system. The canary girls were given milk to combat the jaundice, a common treatment at the time, and may be one of the contributing reasons why embalmers have the misbelief that milk will treat jaundice in embalming. Conditions and pay were so bad that in 1915, the Women's War Workers Committee drew up a list of demands for equal treatment and pay. Many men supported this because they were afraid after the end of the war, the women would continue this work for lower pay. Three years later, they would strike and draw the government's attention to conduct an investigation that ultimately went nowhere. While that, of course, is a sad occurrence, it should be noted that this was an important contribution to a women's right movement that was happening around the world. I will leave a link to the Wales Museum History of the Canary Girls in the show notes so you can read more about these powerful women. So, if we were faced with the embalming of one of the canary girls, we would treat them for jaundice as that was the cause of their yellow discoloration. Anemia often causes dehydration and the canary girls were known to have a gaunt appearance which supports this. We are getting off lucky in this case because jaundice is more typically accompanied by edema which would drive our preservative demand up, but in this case we likely wouldn't have that problem to such a degree. However, we would need to be cautious because kidney damage is common with exposure to poisons and a compromised immune system would increase the likelihood of bacterial activity. So while we wouldn't be dealing with a high water content, we would need more preservative to combat nitrogenous waste and bacteria. Fortunately for us, the bilirubin discoloration is intravascular, so it would be possible to flush the system with a pre-injection supplement of chemicals and embalm them with formaldehyde after to minimize or avoid the green discoloration that happens when formaldehyde comes into contact with bilirubin. And now for something good that's happening. I am changing up this portion of the show. I want to promote what you do. If you are an independent creator of something and would like a little bit more exposure, I am offering to do it for free. I will be somewhat discerning about what I promote, but if you'd like to pitch it to me, email me at funeralsciencepodcast at gmail.com. If you have something that promotes education or equality in funeral service, I am still doing that as well. Please send me what you have in the subject line, put promote me, and it better have an exclamation mark. Otherwise, I won't hear it. If you like the show, you can follow me on Instagram at Mortracker. That's M-O-R-T-R-A-Q-R. 
or like the Funeral Science Podcast page on Facebook. If you enjoy my content, but think I'm too stuffy, you can find me in my natural environment on the Funeral Cast, my other podcast where my friends in funeral service and I analyze popular topics and news items related to funeral service. I'm sorry in advance, this is a sponsored podcast, so there are ads, but there is also lots of fun. The Funeral Cast also has its own Instagram and Facebook page for you to follow if you feel so inclined. Until next time, please stay safe out there.